You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good. I'm glad you're here. Pray that you had a great Thanksgiving. Um, I love these holiday Sundays like this. I, for some reason, they're special to me, and they always give me the opportunity to do something that I probably just wouldn't normally do. So I want you to take your copy of God's Word. And uh, let's look at Psalm 136. It's called the Great Hallel. Hallelujah is hallelujah, never used in this passage. But this psalm is called the Great Hallel, the praise to God. Thursday, we were giving thanks to God and praising God. And yesterday, we lost it all, didn't we? Uh, well, some of us, anyway. Um, so, what a dismal, dismal day. So, it's good to come to church and to turn to the Word of God. Um, let me just um, share with you a couple of things. One, I'm going to share with you from the Word, and then I'm going to slip out. Deb and I leave on a plane for Germany this time. Uh, tomorrow morning, we should already be there, Lord willing. And uh, next Sunday, this time, I will have preached three times. Not in German, but in English. Somebody's got to translate it. But I'm preaching in Cologne, Germany uh, next Sunday morning. And uh, I will be teaching in the uh, Bible seminary uh, that is in Bonn. Wednesday night I'll be preaching. Um, And by the way, they sent me a note and said, hey, you'll be teaching Ezekiel 34 uh, Wednesday night in Bonn. Go home and read Ezekiel 34. So this week I not only wrote this sermon, but I had to write a sermon on Ezekiel 34. And uh, two weeks, a week from today, you'll be in this place with wonderful Christ-honoring music, and uh, you should be bringing somebody with you. You should already have somebody lined up to come. They'll come and hear music when they won't come and hear a preacher preach. Uh, But two weeks from today, you go home and read the rest of Exodus 4, And when you read the rest of Exodus 4, that's what I'm going to preach on. There's a Christmas story in there. The rest, the second half, you'll come back and you may say, I don't care for everything about that preacher, but one thing I can say is he's got guts. You don't know what I'm talking about. You go home and read it. (laughs) And when you read it, you'll say, he's preaching on that. You remember what Kirkwood just read out of of chapter 8 of Hebrews, how that first covenant Uh, came about, and he says, now I'm going to come and I'm going to establish. The word literally goes back to the word cut. How did you know those who were a part of the first covenant? There you go. If you didn't hear it, go home and read. Uh, But there's a Christmas story in all of that. Psalm 136, now I am certain all of you remember reading, I can't remember when, whether it was the 6th grade or the 7th grade or somewhere right in there, Gulliver's Travel. Did y'all, you read that, right? At least you read the cliff notes, I'm certain of that. Um, But uh, we all remember, which by the way, it was written by a pastor, it was written by a preacher, Jonathan Swift. He was from Ireland and he wrote this as a political satire. And um, you you remember the part, I I started to put the picture up, I remember the part, the big picture of Gulliver, this huge man, normal-sized man, but he lands, 
and washes up literally on the shores of Lilliput, and all the Lilliputians come out and they tie him down. You remember all the thousands of ropes going across him? And these little people, about six inches tall, had tied him down. These Lilliputians uh, who um, uh, made up the land of Lilliput. Now, there was one capital offense uh, to these Lilliputians. Do you remember what it was? There was one thing that would get you executed in Lilliput. And what it was, was a lack of gratitude, a lack of thanksgiving. And so you've got the writer of Psalm 136 who comes and he is going to give thanks to the Lord if he doesn't do anything else. Uh, Thanksgiving, just a few days ago, if you gathered around your table uh, and you held hands as a family and you said a blessing, I'm going to tell you, you did three things that I guarantee you, you never thought about. Number one, you defied the flesh. The flesh never wants to say thank you to anybody. It always wants to exalt itself. It is never something that is thankful. It is, it is in defiance of your flesh to say thank you. Number two, you defied and insulted and assaulted the throne of hell when you said thanks to God. I can promise you that. And I guarantee you never thought of it like that. And the third thing is this. You flew in defiance in the face of the culture in which we live right now. Everybody is to thank me. I owe no one any thanks. That's our culture. Well, in Scripture, God comes and over and over through the Word of God, from the Old Testament through the New Testament, you can begin back in Genesis, go through Revelation, and what you've got is you've got God pounding, pounding, pounding this idea of thanksgiving and praise. You've got God that is constantly laying a foundation for these Hebrews. Now, we're in Exodus we're watching as God brings these children of his out of Egyptian bondage, and he is going to form an entire nation out of them. And in the very foundation of the nation of Israel, there is laid this thanksgiving and this praise of God. You don't realize it, you know, you don't think about it so much, but I'm going to show you this that all the way through Scripture and all the way through the history of the people of God, this is a constant laying the foundation of thanksgiving. It happened every day. It happened every week. It happened every month. It happened every year, seven times a year, by the way. It happened every seventh year. It happened every seven sevens of years, every 49th year into the 50th year. And as you read, as we will see, as God gives Moses the law, you're going to see this whole thing play out. Do you know that in Israel, number one, every single day there was a morning and an evening sacrifice? In Jerusalem, at the tabernacle or at the temple, uh, there was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice, and the morning sacrifice basically was a thanksgiving of God bringing the people through the night, 
and starting a new day. And at the end of the day, there was a sacrifice, which was partly a thanksgiving of God uh, being with us through the course of a day and then preparing and praying and trusting God for the night. That was every day of thanksgiving. It happened every week. It was called Shabbat. If you begin to read in Genesis chapter 1, it always says, and it was evening and it was morning was the next day. And so in the Hebrew life, every afternoon at sundown, it began a new day at sundown and from that day until the next day. And so God rested on the seventh day. It was Shabbat. And uh, there in Shabbat, from the sundown of Friday till the sundown of Saturday, it was a complete day of rent. You did nothing. You pulled back from all work. Uh, And uh, you did nothing on that day but worship the Lord. And you spent the entire day in praise and thanksgiving. And that praise and that thanksgiving was what would renew you, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally, and enabled you to live and engage in business for the next six days. Now, we do it on Sunday. Sunday is to be the day of worship for us, but it's a day of praise and a day of thanksgiving. Every day, every week. Then it happened every month. You can go back and look through the Old Testament. You begin to read about this thing called uh, the the Feast of the New Moon. In fact, when you come to Jonathan and David, and David is running from Saul, and he doesn't know if Saul will accept him or or if Saul is still angry at him and wants to take his life. And David said, well, I won't be at the Feast of the New Moon. And Jonathan said, I will go in at the Feast of the New Moon, and there will be a chair for you. It will be empty. We will miss you. Your chair will be empty. I'll find out if my father is still angry at you, and I'll let you know. Well, every new moon, that's every month, there would be a feast. There would be sacrifices that would be done in that new moon festival, and it was basically a time of thanking God for all God had done for the last month. Then you came to the year. There were seven, seven festivals or feasts through the year. Seven times a year, God would call his people to gather together. And in some of these feasts, I want you to think about this, he called them to bring a tenth. Now, this was not their only tenth. Uh, They had already tied the tenth. They would tie the tenth, and then they would bring another tenth. Anybody thankful you don't live under the Old Testament law right now? They'd bring another tenth, but it wouldn't just be in money. They would bring it in animals. They would bring it in grain. They would bring it in produce. They would bring it in fruit. They would bring it whatever they had, and they would bring it down to Jerusalem. It would be just like you taking a tenth of whatever you would make this coming year, whatever it is that you do. If you sold cars, you'd bring a tenth of your cars. If you sold furniture, you'd bring a tenth of your friend, and you'd bring it all down here to the church, and we just set it all out, and we'd just enjoy it all. Now, that's what they did. There were four in the spring and three in the fall. In the, in the spring, they had Passover. They had unleavened bread. They had first fruits, and then they had Pentecost. Those four times of celebration, and in those four times, it always was a looking back to what God has done. 
how God has blessed, how God has delivered, how God has saved us. And it was a giving of thanksgiving, and they would offer up animals of thanksgiving to God for what God had done. Then you had that long period, by the way, I don't have time to go through all of this, but they'd go through that period of months when they would not have a feast, which is equivalent to the church age right now. Because they were looking forward to these three feasts in the fall, which would be trumpets, um, the Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. Those three looked forward to the coming Messiah. They knew that God was going to send somebody to save them, somebody to come and deliver them. And so these three feasts would constantly point toward the one that was going to come. And listen, one day, we just sang about it, one day he is going to come and he's going to come with a trumpet. And he will bring atonement, he will bring his salvation with him. And then we will tabernacle with him for all of eternity. Jiminy Cricket. There you see it in all of that. So you've got those seven feasts in the course of a year. And in the course of a year, you're constantly going up to celebrate, listen, and give thanks and praise to God. Then you would come to every seventh year. Israel never did this, and because of that, they spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity. One year for every sabbatical year they ignored. Let me, let me just let you in on something. God will not be ignored. God will not be ignored in your life. God will not be ignored by his church. God will not always be ignored in this world. There's coming a day when he'll catch everybody's attention, Republican and Democrat. Oh, all of them, all of us, he'll catch attention. Every bit of the attention will be off of the politics of man and onto the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, every seven years, they were to stop work for an entire year. And you said, well, how would they live? They would live trusting God. They would live trusting God that there was enough that had been plowed into the fields that it would. Now, my dad was a farmer years ago. It, what, what he would call it, volunteer grain, volunteer fruit, volunteer uh, vegetables, volunteer uh, that would just come up on its own. And they were to live in trust, thanking God for how God provided for them in a year when they would just spend it doing one thing, that is concentrating, thanking, and praising God for that year. And by the way, did you know that every single sabbatical year, every single sabbatical year, all debt was canceled. You would have no Von Mar bill to pay in the seventh year. Only the women are smiling in this place. And not a man smiling in here at all. Listen, every seventh year that took place. Do you see what that points to? Is that there's coming a seventh year. There's coming a day when all of our debts will be canceled. Not our financial debts, but our spiritual and our sin debt. And then every 49th year, every 50th year, give you something to live for. Because let me tell you what would happen. That would be the year of Jubilee. It was an entire year where no one did anything in the year of Jubilee except this. That was to worship and to praise and to give thanks to God. And in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, every piece of property that had been lost or sold or taken away would revert back to the original owner. 
You lost your property because of debt. You lost your property because of some lawsuit. You lost your property. God would see to it in the 50th year. You got that family property back. It never was to leave your family. Do you know that's where this whole concept of, uh, in English law, that every man's home is his castle? That's why they made, uh, that's why they made King John uh, sign this thing um, and uh, agree to this. He was Richard's brother, Richard the Lionhearted's brother. They made John sign it. All the barons of England came together and said, you will never take another piece of property from an Englishman so that an Englishman could stand in a one-room house and look King John in the eye and say, you don't have to come in my house. I don't have to let you in my house, and you can't take any bit of this from me. It all comes back from the fact that God gave land to the Jews, to each family, and to each tribe, and he said you're never to, to sell it or depart from it, and that is good to this day, and that's why the Jew is back in Israel, though most of the world wants them out, and they'll never drive them out. Okay, y'all had enough? Okay, well, that's it. God, God laid that foundation. He poured that foundation. He pounded that over and over. Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. Every day, every week, every month, every year, every seven years, every 49 years to the 50th year. It was a way of God saying that the greatest of the, of the virtues of all is the virtue of thanksgiving. And so now the psalmist, look at what the psalmist does. You come to this tremendous psalm, this great hallel as it is called, this giving thanks and praise to God. And we're only, only going to look at the first three verses because you, you don't have time, I don't have time, nor do you have the endurance to sit and listen to all 26 verses. But 26 times the psalmist says this, his loving kindness is everlasting. So let's go back now, and I want you to see what he's doing here. He's talking about the glory due the name of God. Now, I've had this on my mind, folks, for at least two weeks. I've been looking at this. I've not been able to get away from it. I've been thinking about it. In fact, this past uh, uh, last Sunday night when we had our family meeting to vote on the budget and, and we shared all of that, I shared, I just began to share what the Lord was saying to me out of this passage and uh, we gave great praise and thanks to God for the year, uh, this past year, what God has done in this church and pray that God would uh, bless and use us and use what comes through this church for his glory. So now the glory due to his name. Look at verse 1. Now, I think David wrote this, and I'll tell you why I think David wrote this, because this expression, his loving kindness is everlasting, David uses over and over. In fact, if you go back to First Chronicles uh, chapter 16, you're going to see this. David is moving the ark uh, up toward the city of Zion, where he lives. So he's going to move it. He begins to dance before the ark. You're all aware of that. And he gives this psalm of thanksgiving. And in the midst of the psalm of thanksgiving, listen to what he says. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. I don't think there's any doubt. And then listen to what God says back to him. 
Uh, with them were Heman and Jeduthun and the rest of those who were chosen, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his loving kindness is everlasting. Now God speaks to David in chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles, and he says, I will be his father, speaking of Solomon. He's telling David, you, 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 listen, David, I, 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 I'm going I'm to use your son, and I want you to understand, I will be his father. He shall be my son. I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. That was Saul. He's saying, in other words, God's saying, my loving kindness will be everlasting. So I think David writes this, and as he does, he gives three names of God, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. And the interesting thing is this, and I just saw this, and I was showing my daughter this a moment ago. If you look through this psalm and you begin to read this thing, you're going to see those first three names of God. We're going to come back to that. But beginning in verse 4, look at this. It only uses these pronouns here, to him his loving kindness, to him, his, him, his, 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 he. You read that? You won't read the name of God again until you come to the last verse, and it says, give thanks to the God of heaven for his loving kindness is everlasting. And you say, well, now why does he do that? He does that to draw attention to the name of God. This whole thing, it begins and it ends with the name of God. It begins and it ends with thanksgiving. It bookends right there this whole psalm. And it constantly repeats. It's like the ringing of a bell that goes on and on and on. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. Now go back and begin to look at this. And I want you to see this from the beginning. You come in verse 1 to the covenant name of God. Give thanks to the Lord. Do you see that? We looked at this, I think, a number of times we looked at this when we were looking at chapter 3 of Exodus, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is Yahweh. That was the covenant name of God. That was the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. It was the name that no Jew would mention. In fact, they would not write it out completely. They would uh, abbreviate it in some ways uh, in some ways, they would just drop the vowels and only put the consonants, uh, and then they would never mention that name. And yet it is, we believe it is the name Yahweh or Jehovah, as the Germans translate it, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. Now notice that good modifies the noun. The Lord is good. Good is in the Hebrew is tov. It means more than just something is good. It means there is a richness, a wealth, a wholeness. It is replete. It is full. And what it is full of is that God is full of loving kindness and everlasting modifies loving kindness. So God's Loving kindness is rich. It is a wealth of loving kindness. It is deep. It is so deep that it is everlasting. 
you can plunge your arm down into the treasure chest of the loving kindness of God and you will never hit the bottom of it. He is God. And he is a God who is full of loving kindness to us. His goodness never runs out. It's never exhausted. It's never depleted. It is always as full as it was when you went to it. And he gives and he gives and he gives out of his loving kindness. And yet it never runs out. I know I've probably told you all this before, but humor me. Um, I, I had a man back in Dallas who walked up and gave me a checkbook when I was there. And he said, Pastor, that checkbook always has $10,000 in it. Use it for whatever you need. If you see a family that needs something, then take care of the need. If you come across students that need something, then take care of the need. If you have... Uh, 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 someone in the hospital that needs something, you take care of it. But no matter what you write out of that checkbook, there is always a $10,000 balance. Now, if I told you the company the man ran and owned, you would say, okay, I can believe that. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> he's still living, even though he's up in his 90s. Uh, but he, he, he was one of the kindest, most generous men I've ever met in my life. And a man who uh, had tremendous wealth, was a member of the church there. That's exactly what God is saying to you. I have given you a checkbook. It's called loving kindness. You won't ever run out of loving kindness, no matter how much you use. The sad thing is I gave it back to him when I left First Dallas. I felt like it was the good thing to do. <laughs> anyway, isn't that, isn't that neat? That's our God. He is God. That's why we give thanks to him. And by the way, this word thanks is used in these first three verses. You come to verse two now. Look at the second noun that is here. Give thanks to the God of gods. That noun right there is Elohim. It's the oldest name of God. It's the name you read when you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, and you read these words, in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. He's the creator God. Yahweh is the covenant God. Elohim is the creator God. He created you. He made you. He made you. He made me in his image Thanks, give thanks to the God of gods. Every other God is man-made. Every other God is from human invention and imagination. But we serve a God who was before man, who was before the world, who existed as far back in eternity past as you could possibly think, and who will exist into eternity future as far as you can imagine. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. There it is again. What is the nature of that God? He's not just a creative God. He's a God who loves us. What does John tell us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8? God, Elohim, is love. Listen to Moses. Go back. Put your finger right there in Psalm 136. 
Go back in Deuteronomy, if you will, and listen to what Moses has to say. There is, uh, he is God and there's none beside him. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 35, and then in verse 39, know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is Elohim in heaven above, on the earth below, and there is no other. But now this is what I want to show you. Just look on over. If you're in Deuteronomy, look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses comes to a young generation. He comes to the next generation And to this next generation, all the older generation now has died in the wilderness. He's got all of these these young'uns now, all of these young people, and he's going to explain to them. He's giving them the law a second time. That's Deuteronomy. And he's going to begin by saying, let me tell you why God chose you. Now listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. Did you get that? But because the Lord loved you. The Lord loved you. That's why he chose you, not because you're such a peach, not because you're so charismatic, not because you are so winsome, not because you're so commanding or so talented or so gifted or so forceful. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you, and you can't do anything about that except just bask in the fact that God loves you. And I don't want to make some of you folks in here smile. I realize your sideburns would crack if some of you do, but you ought to smile at least once in life. God loves you. And the reason he chose you is because he put his love on you. And can you explain it? No. No. It's beyond explanation. And the psalmist follows that up. Listen, that's the nature of God right there. He just chose to love you. And in loving you, he sent his son. That's what I'm going to deal with in two weeks, is that son's going to get here. But it's not going to be through the efforts of man, through circumcision. He's going to come as an act of the will of God. By the promise of the will of God, the eternal Christ will come and he will dwell here on earth. Listen, let me just just help you with this right here. God loves you. He's always loved you. He will always love you. Does that mean he accepts your sin? No. Does that mean that he loves you and he is here for you and he waits for you? Yes. And he sent his son to die for all of us. Muhammad never did. Go read. I've read the Quran. Go read the Quran. You'll never see where Allah or Muhammad loves anybody. Go read the Gita and read about Shiva. And let me let you in on something. Nowhere are you told that Shiva loves any human whatsoever. Go write and or go read any of the writings of Gautama Buddha. Buddha doesn't love anybody but himself. But let me let you in on this. Jesus Christ loves you. And he sent you a letter saying that he loved you. It's called the Bible. And you can count on this. 
His loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 95, just look back at Psalm 95 and listen to what the psalmist says there. It's tremendous when he comes and he says, Oh, let us sing for the joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Do you know that sing is the number one command in all of Scripture? To sing. We are commanded to sing. Or I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing. I will sing. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing. With my mouth will I make known. His faithfulness. His faithfulness. With my mouth will I make known. His faithfulness to all generations. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. He comes and he says, sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. You know why he's the rock of our salvation? Because he's the only stable thing in your life. You might right now in your life, there is some instability in your health. In your life, there may be some instability in your finances or in your job or in your school. Listen, you may have instability in every area of your life, but I can tell you this, your salvation isn't unstable. It rests on the rock, and the rock never shakes. Son, listen, I know it's early in the morning, but y'all can do better than that, Baptist. Good night. All right. The last thing, look at this last verse here. You know, all I'm doing is just looking at these names. I haven't done anything other than just, verse 3, give thanks now to the Lord. Capital L, lowercase O-R-D, Lord of Lords. Now, when I read that, I stop and I think to myself, that name there is Adonai. It was found first on the lips of Abraham. In chapter 15, I believe it is, in Genesis chapter 15, he comes back from, uh, from dealing, getting Lot out of the mess he was in, and he comes back and he meets Melchizedek, and then God is now going to appear to him and is going to cut a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham calls him Adonai, master. He says, master, I still don't have a son. Now, that's the context that he uses it in. So Abraham calls him Master. The psalmist here uses that name, Adonai, master. It also means Lord, just as you have it here. It can also be translated sovereign. And when I think of a sovereign God, I not only think of the power of God, but I think of the ability of God to see all of life. Our master sees everything that we do. Our sovereign God sees and knows every single thing that we do. What is done in the broad daylight, what is done in the darkness of some back room somewhere, you can be sure that Adonai sees it all. And he knows it. He sees us. Listen to Proverbs chapter 5. This is a great verse. Proverbs chapter 5, and I think it's verse 1. Uh, Proverbs 5, verse 2. Proverbs 15, verse 2. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools sprouts folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. You know, when I read that, I think, I think about that, but I think about that passage in Jeremiah 
where Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah looks at the people and he says, here's a man that goes out in the woods and he cuts down a tree and he takes that tree and he shapes it and he carves it and then he puts, uh, you know, he puts gold on it and he puts earrings on it and he puts a crown on it and he stabilizes it. Then he bows down in front of it and he worships it and he says it's got ears but it can't hear and it's got a mouth but it can't speak and it's got eyes and it cannot see. My God can do all of that. That's our God. He is our Adonai, our master, our Lord, our sovereign. And what this psalmist is telling us here is that because of who God is, he deserves our thanksgiving. He deserves our praise. You come to Revelation chapter 11, verse 17, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign. Listen, let me let let you in on a secret. The reign of God is not coming. The reign of God is in the process right now. It's in the process right now. And we are to come before him. Have you done that this week? Have you praised him? Have you given him thanks? And since the emphasis is on the name of the Lord, or what have you done with the name of the Lord this week? I'm reading a lot of English history right now. I've I've just completed three books. I've I've got a book, when I get on that plane, I've got a book that deals with um, Lord uh, 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 Marlborough and Blenheim Palace and uh, the battle that he won and of course, Blenheim Palace was built for him by Queen Anne out of thanks for the nation, of saving the nation from France. And um, I, I can't wait to start that. And I'm, I'm reading all this stuff right now about English history. In the 1930s, there was an American jazz musician that was invited to come and play a command performance for the royalty of Europe. There in London, King George VI, that was Elizabeth's father, King George VI and his wife Mary were sitting in the royal box in um, the Majesty's Theater. All of the jazz players had gathered and they were tuning their instruments on the stage. And this jazz musician walked out, looked up at the box, And he said, this song is for you, Rex. Rex being the Latin word for king. And everybody in England was aghast. That somebody like that would come out and so casually and carelessly embarrass himself by speaking to the king that way. How do you handle the name of God? Our sovereign, our master, our deliverer, our Yahweh. Stand with me and let's pray. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. 
to find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.